I mean, I think a lot of folks that are recent asylum seekers are bearing the brunt of this misperception that they did something wrong when oftentimes they really had no other avenue. And if they presented a port of entry, they literally have broken no laws, right? Seeking asylum is, of course, a fully legal thing. So I think that's one point. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda-Silgado. It's the holiday season, and we know conversations with family can sometimes be challenging. Whether it's addressing a long-standing disagreement, bringing up a sensitive topic, or simply trying to express our own thoughts and feelings, these interactions can be difficult and emotionally charged. But with the right approach, they can also be an opportunity to better understand one another. Today, I speak to our civics reporter, Felipe de la Oz, about good ways to handle conversations about issues that New Yorkers face today. I'm uh, Felipe de la Hose, uh, independent journalist, founder of the Borderlines Immigration Policy Newsletter, a member of the New York Daily News Editorial Board, lecturer at CUNY and at NYU, and uh, an immigration reporter who also happens to do the civic newsletter for URL. We know you write a lot about local issues in New York City, but um, for your last story, you wrote about different scenarios that New Yorkers might encounter, scenarios that might be a little bit polarizing, but you usually can't escape them at holiday parties or family functions. So I'm just going to tell you the three scenarios, and maybe you can just tell us how we can respond. The first one is, I didn't vote in New York's election. I'm a cleaner in a Midtown hotel, and I'm an immigrant myself. I can't believe New York is giving free room and board to tens of thousands of migrants. I came here the right way and did things myself to get to where I am. So how would you respond to that? There's a large volume of misunderstanding about exactly how any of these processes work. And people, I think, when they say something about the right way or the line or what have you, are not necessarily fully aware of the processes that are available for people who want to migrate to the U.S., especially for humanitarian processes. Uh, and for, you know, for reasons of asylum and such. And so the, the kind of, it's all very complicated, but the kind of basest answer is that there isn't really much of an avenue for a right way to seek humanitarian pr- protections in the U.S., partly because the refugee system as a whole has been decimated. I mean, we have way, way, way undershot our, our targets for refugee resettlements for the last two fiscal years running. And there's all sorts of policies that have been present at the border for a long time, you know, that have basically made it very difficult to even attempt to access the legal rights for asylum. So, you know, I mean, I think a lot of folks that are kind of recent asylum seekers are bearing the brunt of this misperception that they did something wrong when oftentimes they really had no other avenue. And if they presented a port of entry, they literally have broken no laws, right? Mm-hmm. Seeking asylum is, of course, a fully legal thing. So, I think that's one point here. The other point is that, um, you know, even throughout history, right, like people who are recent arrivals often need some help getting propped up. And especially folks that are kind of, you know, escaping from something, right, uh, who are kind of fleeing oftentimes with very little in the way of, you know, wealth and possessions, uh, you know, arriving somewhere they might not speak the language, oftentimes without work authorization, because usually they don't get that for six months and whatnot. And so there really isn't a, a better path than to have both nonprofits and, and sort of, you know, civic groups and local governments and, and, you know, ideally the federal and state governments as well lend a helping hand. And the alternative isn't really like that they're fine without 
the help, right? The alternative is they don't get the help, and then they're you know in a really terrible situation that that is harder to recover from than if they just got the help in the first place. So people like to say, oh, you know, we you know are really upset about this homelessness uh, issue around the streets of New York, and you know we we are we are afraid, and you know that's a that's a frequent talking point from what are often some of the same people that say that they're upset that uh, the migrants are receiving help. And it's like, well, you know, if you don't uh, assist, that's probably what, what would happen, you know, to, to, to people who are recent arrivals. They, w- they wouldn't really have any way to establish themselves. Not to mention that, of course, as, as we've written about before, uh, New York is under a, a legal settlement to provide shelter to all those who need it. So even if the city didn't want to, you know, provide assistance, they would functionally have to uh, under the law. So there's a lot of kind of factors at play, but I, you know, I would just kind of urge people to kind of really try to be aware of the specific set of circumstances surrounding folks. Uh, and the idea that, you know, this is all really meant to be something temporary, right? Until they kind of are able to get on their feet and, you know, eventually they may win their cases or they might not, in which case they're, you know, formally removable. But in the interim, right, I think it's in everyone's best interest that they're looked after to some extent. Yeah, and so scenario number two, I am an Asian woman and very afraid to go out alone and really don't want the police to be defunded. I believe in racial justice and equality, and I'm actually pretty liberal, so it feels weird to vote Republican. But I also cannot feel unsafe any longer. Yeah, I mean, obviously we saw that the public safety conversation drove a lot of political organizing in the last several months. And in fact, a lot of the gains made by the GOP in parts of New York, particularly Long Island and Brooklyn and such, were driven, I think, by kind of this perception of out-of-control crime. And so there are a few things to note here. One is that, you know, there are, there have been some very high-profile incidents targeting, I think, you know, Asian women in particular in the last, you know, several several months uh, in the last year, and that's very unfortunate, right? It's, it, it must be addressed. Mm-hmm. However, we are not experiencing a return to the 90s or some of this other stuff that people say. I mean, if you just look at the broad numbers, crime is actually most types of violent crime are going, you know, either rising up from a very, very, very low baseline, right? So they're increasing from what was effectively the lowest ever crime rates uh, up until a few years ago. And some types of crimes like murders are actually going down uh, year over year from last year, right? It's, you know, the other, some other types of crimes have continued to go up. I mean, there's stuff like robberies and whatnot, but, you know, it's not like every alarm is blaring red here and going in the wrong direction. So I would, I would establish that as a as kind of just a first contextual point. And the other point I think to have in mind is that, you know, we have this notion that I think there's kind of a very flattened notion of what it, what the kind of defund movement is after. And certainly there were people in it that were after total defunding, right? You know, just zeroing out the budget. I mean, some people were even conflating it with kind of the abolishment of the police, right? Saying it was all kind of part of the same movement. But if you really look at a lot of the, the conversations that were happening internally in groups that were presenting themselves as kind of more on the defund side of things, it really runs the gamut of options, right? And most of them aren't, you know, just this kind of total funding. And actually, most of them are redirection of funds, right? And, and which is something that um, there are actually some kind of pro police theorists and scholars and, and people like that who support as well in the sense of taking just some things off the plate of the police uh, and putting them into other, you know, government functions. So, right, like having mental health professionals or clinicians or actually, you know, what. I think the mayor even has sometimes said is upstream solutions. So, you know, what are the root causes of violence, right? You know, what is leading people to violence? You know, it's not that, you know, they're not being policed enough necessarily. It's, you know, sometimes it's an economic issue, right? People don't have 
you know, there, there aren't as many jobs available in particular neighborhoods as there should be or pipelines to get people employed or, or you know, things like that. And so a lot of what the, the, the movement posited was simply that there, you know, if we're going to be talking about this as a return on investment and our return here is measured in safety, then we could actually get a better return if we do certain other things with the money that is being currently uh, used exclusively for kind of enforcement. And so I think you, but you might still disagree with that, right? That might, you know, you might still not kind of be on the same page, but it is a very different thing. It's a very different conversation to have than just to say like, oh, you know, I don't want the police to be, you know, basically taken completely off the streets, right? It's just mm-hmm. a different dialogue. And, and, you know, I would urge people who feel that way, you know, who feel that they've been abandoned or whatever, that just kind of really pay attention to what the conversation actually is. But also to the fact that, I mean, even that kind of more developed conversation is still relatively niche. I mean, there's no real jurisdiction where the police were actually defunded, you know, in, in, in any measurable way. In fact, in most jurisdictions around the country, certainly in New York, all police budgets have stayed the same or increased, right? And so, you know, the, the specter gets rolled out uh, a lot, but practically there, you know, there wasn't any defunding that took place anyway. So you can't really blame, you know, any current crime upticks on that because it didn't happen. You know, people point to the fact that like part of the police budget was redirected out, but really it was, you know, it just went to like basically employing the same pool of of police officers, but like out of the education department budget, you know, and some tricks like that. But in any meaningful way, I mean, there's no defunding that actually happened. So there's also that to keep in mind. I think, right, it's like if you're responding to a certain circumstance, that circumstance may not be totally accurate, right? It may be more of a, of a perception. And then our last scenario is about um, open streets. Uh, I am an Uber driver, and there's a push for open streets in my neighborhood, but it means less parking spots. And also the double parking across New York City is driving me crazy. I understand that there's a need for more park space, but I feel like working people need parking. Where can we go? I mean, a few things, right? I mean, first of all, like congestion pricing is supposed to kick in soon. And in theory, it would reduce the volume of cars throughout much of Manhattan, at least, you know, and ideally the rest of the city through kind of dissuading drivers from you know, Long Island and Westchester and other parts, you know, Jersey uh, to kind of be driving into the city frequently. You know, aside from that, we have kind of seen other models that have worked in, in, in other cities that are less centric and in fact around New York, I mean there are there are trade offs certainly, right? I mean I know it must be annoying for somebody who's depending on uh, a car for their employment uh, to not have as many parking spots as before or whatnot. But you know, this person I would assume also lives in the city and may have kids that they want to have play on the open street, right? There are things that you gain along with the things that are lost. And if we're, if we're talking about kind of like specifically the needs of working people, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, statistically speaking, people who tend to have personal vehicles in New York, more often than not, I mean, are, are on the wealthier side of the spectrum because most kind of working people actually don't have cars in New York, which is really the only American city where you, you kind of have that dynamic. And so it, uh, kind of on balance, some of these things can actually increase the livability of the city, have people be more um, more to do in their neighborhoods, sort of a, a better time being outside and in community and kind of, you know, in, in a place that is, by the way, free, right? Because one of the complaints that people have in general about kind of public space recently is that so much of it is commercial now and, you know, it's like there's not that many places to go if you don't want to be spending money um 
kind of the whole idea of like a third place where you can build community. Well, you know, an open street, I think, can be that in the way that sort of a park can as well um, and kind of bring people together. And so there's a kind of a nice, you know, livability, walkability thing to it, but I think it serves even a broader purpose than that. Uh, if you just have more opportunities for people to kind of inhabit space and, and talk to each other and whatnot. And so there's that. And then there's also, I think, the kind of notion that we do actually really need to do more terrain in the consequences of cars, right? And, and actually traffic fatalities are sharply up from pre-pandemic levels. You know, even if there are, you know, even in circumstances where there have been fewer cars on the street, there are actually more more collisions, more deaths. Uh, and so, you know, you can't deny that there's a certain danger to having these you know, vehicles kind of zipping around on city streets and, and, and ways of kind of blocking their access to some extent can alleviate some of these concerns while, you know, still allowing for, you know, through traffic, you know, emergency vehicles and all these sorts of things. Sometimes people worry about, but, you know, the open streets can then have crucial vehicles through. And so... You know, there's a lot of moving parts here, but ultimately, uh, you know, a city with fewer cars is, you know, more livable, more hospitable, less dangerous. And I think, you know, if, if people don't have their own cars and, and are using more transit, uh, that actually probably will be good for even the business of, of ride hail. Because, you know, if it becomes very impractical to have a personal vehicle just to drive it around every once in a while, people won't have them as much, right? And so the people who do will be those like this particular, you know, hypothetical Uber driver who are using it for daily business activities. And so they might actually experience more business, <laughs> you know what I mean? If, if, if there's an incentive for everyone else to, you know, get rid of their, their, their personal vehicle. So there is that as well. Well, thanks so much. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I mean, I would encourage you to look at the bivalent booster for COVID-19. The adoption rates have been pretty terrible at the national level. I think they're a little better in New York, but they're not great. And I know people are kind of tired and have fatigue over it, and, like, nobody wants to hear about it anymore, but it's, like, very easy. I mean, most pharmacies have it at this point. There's no wait. It's, like, pretty widely available. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, you know, the the Omicron-derived variants are pretty nasty stuff. And so, uh, you know, it'll take up a half hour of your time, but it'll be, you know, potentially pretty significant for you in the long run to to kind of avoid, you know, getting one of these nasty sub-variants. And the bivagellin is, you know, specifically designed to combat them. So just something to to kind of think about going into the holidays, especially as people are gathering with family and whatnot. It's, It's worth, you know, kind of For more advice on how to handle conversations like this during the holiday season, read our full story, linked to, in our show notes. Also, if you're still in need of thoughtful gifts for loved ones, be sure to keep an eye out for a BIPOC gift guide coming soon in the Epicenter NYC newsletter. If you're not signed up, make sure to do so today by clicking the link in our show notes. Before we go, our weekly update on monkeypox vaccines in New York City. Make sure to tune in for the latest information on vaccines, testing, care options, and much more. Hi, I'm Sam Zacker, back with this week's New York City mpox update. Last week, we went over whether minors can get testing and treatment for mpox in New York. To learn more, check out last week's episode. Today, I'll be discussing why the New York Department of Health will now be referring to the virus as mpox. The New York Department of Health has announced they're updating its web pages with the term MPOX instead of MPV to align with the recent World Health Organization decision. Late last month, the WHO recommended the new name MPOX as a replacement for monkeypox. 
The name change was made in response to concerns about the use of racist and stigmatizing language associated with the term monkeypox. Nationally, the new name might be used alongside the old name for up to one year while monkeypox is phased out. After this transition period, mpox will become the preferred term and will be officially adopted by the WHO. It will also be included in the International Classification of Diseases. Usually, the ICD updating process can take up to several years, but in this case, the process was accelerated. The change follows consultations with global experts and considerations of factors such as scientific appropriateness, ease of pronunciation, and absence of geographical or zoological references. Keep in mind that things are changing quickly, so if you have any specific questions or need help making a vaccine appointment, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690. Thanks for listening. Join us weekly for more news and information on MPOX in New York City. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to, in our podcast description.